0: Our Savior, our Lord, and our life.
1: Dear ones, thanks again for joining us today on this episode of the Our Resolute Hope podcast. I'm John Russ, and I serve as the host and moderator. And I try to keep my dear friend, Pastor Frank Friedman, from tracking on too many rabbit trails. How are you today, my friend?
2: It's a great day, John. How about you?
1: It is wonderful. It's perfectly warm and sunny in Southern Arizona, as mm-hmm. it always is. Sometimes it's a little more than perfectly warm. It's rather blistering in the summertime, but (laughs) not today. So friends, if you joined us for the first time, Frank and I are discussing some of what we think are the pivotal words in scripture. What we mean by that is, these are cases where a single word or a phrase kind of changes everything. With the first two episodes, we began with, but God, and the last few episodes, we've been talking about grace. And Frank, in the last few episodes, we've talked about what grace is and some of the misconceptions about grace in the church. But today, I want to take a different tack, my friend. I want to talk about something that grace isn't. Mm-hmm. And that's this grace isn't passive. Now, many in the church, as you know, because we've both been accused of this, think that focusing, solely on grace leads believers to be passive, like they sit around and just wait for God to do everything. Frank, what's the basis for that misbelief, and why is it wrong?
2: Oh my goodness, John, you've opened up a can of worms. You uh, know? I'm good at that, my <laughs> friend. <laughs> yeah. Having taught the new covenant for over 30 years now, I would go so far as to say the greatest threat to the message of grace is passivity. Then the reason why I say that, John, is when believers realize that it's not about my performing for God, my doing for God, but God and what he has done and is going to do in and through me, the enemy comes along and pushes them just one little nudge further into passivity where they basically throw out the baby with the bathwater and don't do anything. And you and I have seen this. We see people embrace the new covenant. And the next thing you know, they don't attend the assembly of the saints anymore. They quit giving, they quit teaching, they quit reading their Bible. And when you say anything to them, they say, well, I don't have to do that anymore. And it's true, their language, I don't have to do it anymore But in the New Covenant, we moved from a have to to a want to. We got a new heart, new desire. So now it's not that we have to be at the assembly or have to read our Bible. We want to. We want to be with the saints. We want to know God. But John, here's the problem. This is why I say it's the greatest threat. The rest of the church that is still locked into legalism, performing, functioning under the law, looks at those people who go passive, they see it as error, which it is, but then they throw the baby out with the bathwater and say that message is false. No, no, no. The message of grace is true. What is false is a slip into passivity. That's what the problem is.
1: You know, Frank, you and I have experienced this a lot. Mm-hmm. And no matter how many times we tell people, uh, it's, they still wrestle with it. You know, Paul is so plain. First Corinthians 15, he says this. And again, I'm reading from uh, my current favorite version, the ESV. And Paul writes that God's grace toward him wasn't in vain. That is, it wasn't without effect, Frank. But on the contrary, I worked harder than any of them and that he qualifies it. But it wasn't I. It was a grace of God in me so grace moves us it motivates us to work frank so how does that happen what's going on here
2: well that's a great question john i'm really glad you asked that we didn't even script that i think what happens john is we make grace a doctrine a message something to believe instead of someone to trust and experience. You and I know from Titus two that the grace of God is a person. He's the one who appeared. He's the one who brought salvation to us. He's the one who teaches us to deny ungodliness and live righteously. Grace is Jesus Christ, and when we understand that, then we understand that we're in union with Him and his life is in us, and he wants to express his life through us as we walk in faith. But if you make this thing a doctrine, then it simply becomes something to believe instead of something to experience. And if I could just illustrate it, John, it's a very logical message. I do wrong, therefore I must be wrong. God loves me, he wants to fix that in me, So he sent his son to die for my wrongs. Then he put me on the cross and killed me because I was wrong. Buried me, resurrected me new and right. He did that. So the right one, he himself could live in me and through me. I look at that and I say, I believe that. And I trust you see what I just did. I believe the doctrine. Yes. I believe the message. I didn't say, I believe you. Now let's go walk together. One of the key verses is Colossians 2.6. As we have received him, which was by grace, now go walk the same way, by grace. But the emphasis there is on walk. You know, one of the verses I try to use to teach people that this is not a passivity thing. He promises to meet the needs of the birds of the air, but he doesn't drop the food in their nest. They got to go get it. (laughs) (laughs) It's the same way with us. He's going to meet all our needs, but we've got to go out and get it, believing by faith that he will do so.
1: I like to think about it this way, Frank. He motivates us. The Holy Spirit motivates us from within. You know, Many believers use the phrases, God leads me or he called me. And I get that. And that makes sense because he's inviting us to join him. And those are true statements, but in my mind, they're not completely true because it implies that he's outside of us. Yeah. I like the thought that he mm-hmm. motivates us from within. And I get that, Frank, from Philippians 2, where it says God works in you both to will, so he puts the desire in there, Frank, mm-hmm. and to work for his good pleasure. So he supplies the want to... Then he supplies the how-to mm-hmm. to get all this done. It's almost like, huh, I feel like I want to do that. Mm-hmm. Now, you know, we've talked about this before as we, we've counseled people over the years. They say, well, what does God want me to do? And our response is, well, what do you want to do? Because those who, who set their mind on Jesus delight like in the Lord, what does Psalm 37 say? He'll give you the desires of your heart. He'll place those desires in there. And so mm. we just need to walk and live out of those desires, and he will provide the path. He will provide the way to get it done. And mm. it's, it's so simple, yeah. but we just seem to get so paralyzed, don't we?
2: Yeah. And John, you know, there's so many other verses in the New Testament. You read the one from 1 Corinthians 15, where Paul said, I labored more than anybody. I did. He quickly adds, yeah, not I, it was Christ. So who was it? Was it Christ or was it Paul? Well, the answer is yes. It was both of them. He said the same thing in Colossians 1. He said, I strive. Then he adds, according to the power that's working within me, which is Christ in me, my hope of glory. Ephesians 1 is another one. We live by the resurrection power of Jesus. In fact, John, Jesus said the same thing in John 14. He told the disciples, the works that you've seen me do, they're the works of the Father. So grace was not passivity. We had to participate in this economy of grace, this methodology of living, of being intimately connected to the person of God. And Jesus is the prototype. He's the one who broke those pieces of bread. He did it. But he said it was the father multiplying those pieces of bread. He's the one who took the steps to walk on the water. But then he added, it was the father giving me the ability to walk on the water. Jesus said without the father, he could do nothing. He said the same thing with us. Without me, you can do nothing. But we can't sit there passive and wait for him to do it. John, I've always illustrated it this way. I know that God wants to love Janet, my wife, through me. He does. That's a plain New Testament truth. But if I sit on the couch and say, okay, Lord, lover, go ahead, do it. I'm going to grow cobwebs. He's not going to overtake me and force me manipulate me like a puppet. I am a person. I have a will. I have a choice. I have to get up out of that couch. I have to walk over to her. I have to give her the hug, trusting all the while that he is going to manifest and express his life from within to her through me. We have a friend, of course, who's now with the Lord John, Juan Carlos Ortiz. And he said it in his own inimitable way that's so good. He said, God in us is the V8 engine providing the room. But we have to turn the key where where, we're we're of faith. When we turn the key where we're we're a faith, then the room takes over and we amaze the world.
1: Yeah. I listen to you talk. My mind runs to yet another passage from Corinthians. Seems like Paul talked to the Corinthian believers a lot about this. This is 2 Corinthians 9, I think, where God is able to make all grace abound to you. And this is how grace appears, Frank. So that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, have I said the word all enough? All (laughs) sufficiency in all things at all times, we can abound in every good work. That's what grace does, Frank. Mm. It doesn't just let us sit there and pontificate and understand the world and have people lay at our feet so we can just spout our wisdom. We should abound in every good work. Grace empowers us to be busy. Like mm. Jesus said, I must be about my father's business. That's mm. the same with us. We've got to be about our father's business. And if we're not, then there's a clog in the grace pipeline somewhere because that's the fruit it should produce. Am I on target?
2: I I think so, John. And and I think we need to bring in another verse to explain this. When Jesus was getting ready to die, he told his disciples greater works than I've done. Will you do? Well, what does that mean? You think about that. I don't see you walking on water, John, and I don't see me feeding 5,000 people with a loaf of bread. I believe what he was saying was that in us, he was going to multiply his life. And the greatest miracle, I believe, that anyone can do is to love the way God loves unconditionally. That is not a part of a human being's makeup. So when he said greater works will you do than I've done, I believe he was talking about his life of love, unconditional love, being multiplied on this planet by as many believers as there are at that particular time. That's grace. Grace is the Christ life. And his is a busy life. It's a loving life. It's a devoted life. It's a serving life. It's a kind and merciful life. I have a friend who says this, Jesus Christ is in you but he wants out. (laughs) And that's a great way to say it.
1: Indeed it is. Listening to this, there's a caution that enters my mind, Mm -hmm. almost a caveat for us, because when we say things like, God places the desires on your heart to just do what you want. That doesn't mean we just barge into any circumstance and start doing whatever we feel like. Because God's grace, as I've thought about it, I'd love it to be this way, but God's grace doesn't flow it at my command. Hmm. It flows at his command. And this is the part that gets me, Frank. His grace is too often made evident through my weakness,
2: hmm. my
1: need. Uh, sometimes, Frank, even my failure. And it mm-hmm. takes that to get my attention. I think of a couple of verses. Second Corinthians 12, we all know this concerning the uh, thorn in the flesh that. Paul had. He asked the Lord three times take it away and he says, "My grace is enough for you, for mm. my power is perfected in weakness. So it's almost as if if you really want to see the power of God in your life, the grace of God in your life, it has to come through weakness. Mm. And then Hebrews 4:16 says, "Let us draw near with confidence and find grace to help. Why? When we're successful in boasting, no when we have a time of greatest need and so as i look at this frank i think my goodness his power is made perfect in my weakness and so if i really want the grace of god to be evident in my life it begins with the foundational truth that i've got to be surrendered and submissive before him and so weakness pain suffering struggle They're all part of this, Frank. I wish they weren't, but they are. So, preacher friend, why did God set it up this way? These are ouch statements.
2: Well, John, I think we have to realize, and remember Bill Gillum, you said it probably better than anybody. I don't necessarily know if we have to suffer, but it's certainly a great tool. (laughs) Bill said there's a plan A, and that's where you and I hear the revelation of God, and we say, oh yes, and just place ourselves under the uh, will and yielding to the Holy Spirit. Most of us don't function like that. And for that, there's plan B. And plan B is where God uses all the circumstances of the fallen world to get us into plan A. (laughs) But I think what's going on, if you think about it, John, I don't know if there's a person on the planet, including us, of course, that really understands how blitzed humanity was, by the fall. In the fall, every one of us came under the lie that we shall be as God. And you and I would look here today and say, well, I don't believe I'm God anymore. Neither do I, Frank. But when we dig a little, do we feel like we have to be strong? Do we feel like we have to be right? Do we need to be in control? Ouch. See, now we've gone from teaching to meddling. We all do. We all want to be wrong. We want to be right. We want to have it all together, but we're not God. And so those things, our failures, our weakness, traumas that come into our life, they're all used by God to bring us to a greater depth of trust and also understanding that we are not God, that we are weak and frail. That's okay. That's how we were created. We were created weak and frail to have the strong one, the right one living inside of us. And I think what John the Baptist said, John, so many years ago, he must increase, I must decrease, is really the life's agenda for every one of us. And pride is, you know, the way of the world. I, I, I. It's the arch enemy of faith. And we need to be brought into the realization that I is not strong enough and I is not right enough and and I just ain't in control.
1: (laughs) That's right. Frank, there's another thought that jumped out at me while we were talking, going back to 2 Corinthians 9, where God is able to make all grace abound to you so we can abound in every good work. What jumped out at me as we were talking was that this doesn't address only the good works that we do in the church world, so to speak. Mm. This applies to everything we do, because if God is in us, and he is, then every place we put our foot is holy ground, and everything we do can be an act of worship. Mm -hmm. And so this applies to our jobs when we're fixing our Blown off shingle on our house, working on our car, washing the dishes, everything that's a part of our life in a day-to-day basis falls under this grace, can abound in us in every single thing we do, if we start with that foundation of weakness and surrender and acknowledging that I'm not God, uh, but he is. So Mm. it's really life-changing, isn't it?
2: Well, it changes every aspect of life. In the book of Revelation, he says there is no temple in the new world. Why? Well, because we don't need a temple. We are the temple. We are the holy of holies. We're the holy city. So wherever we go, we bring God with us. And because that's true, it transforms the ground we walk on, just like when Moses met God at the burning bush and that became holy ground. So Christ changes our relationship to everything. Changing diapers is now an act of worship, John. Mm -hmm. Uh, Sweeping a floor is an act of worship because we're expressing Christ's life. That's what the grace of God is all about. John, maybe it's a good idea to give a definition of grace then. This is the one I've worked on. Grace is being delivered from the economy of performing the law that Adam placed us all into and being placed instead into an economy, a way of doing business, a way of life, of faith, receiving from God all that he is to whatever we need in the moment of our trust. Mm. That's grace. It's a person. And we're walking with him and trusting him to be our
1: everything. Well, Frank, I want to wrap up and I'm going to ask you to make this your final comment, but it's a, it could be a lengthy one. So I'm going to ask you to wrap it up nice and tight. And that involves Galatians 2.20. Hmm. There's an accusation or a result that comes from that verse that leads people to passivity. Tell us what that is and why it's faulty.
2: Well, John, Galatians 2.20 is one of the most glorious verses in the Bible. It's led a lot of people into the New Covenant. I have been crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live, yet not I, but Christ lives in me. And the life I live, and you know, when you're reading that, you almost go, Paul, make up your mind. But this is the tension of a new covenant economy, if you will. Paul said, I did it, but it was the Lord doing it. Jesus said, I did it, but it was God doing it through me. So this is the great tension, and the answer is yes. I died, but I've been resurrected. Christ now lives in me. He's my life, but I still live my life. It's union. That's what it's all about. We're in union with God. And we need to understand this, John, because you know somebody will uh, do a ministry. Let's pick on the worship singers. They go up and sing a song. And this person comes up afterwards and says, oh, that was so wonderful, it encouraged me greatly. And the person on the platform who did the singing says, that wasn't me, it was Jesus. Well, you know, I look at that and I would say, well, I could have sworn I saw you up there moving your lips. That's passivity, John. That's not what the message of the new covenant is. What that person should say is, thank you. I am glad that the song I sang was used by the Holy Spirit to minister to you through me. See, that's the new covenant. So in Galatians 2.20, we have a problem. This is the problem. It's the end of the verse. I live by the faith of the Son of God. Now, that screams passivity because it's saying, well, it's not my faith, it's the faith of Christ. And so a lot of people have reacted against that And they don't translate the definite article. And they simply say, I live by faith in the son of God. But that's not what it says. It says the faith of the son of God. And then there are those who take it the way it says, and they go into passivity. Okay, Lord, it's your faith. Do it. Well, that's not right either. So how do we explain this verse, which is, John, one of the most difficult verses in the Bible, when the previous part of the verse is one of the clearest in the Bible? Why did the Holy Spirit do that? How do we explain it? Well, I have a good friend and this is how he did it. And nobody's ever done it better than he did it. He said, when he lived in England, he would go to Piccadilly uh, Square, Piccadilly Circus. He said, it is a horrendous traffic, chaotic mess. And, but he's crossed that street many, many times. So one day he took his little girl, she's about five years old. And he says, let's go across the street. Well, she panicked. Who wouldn't? But he said, I've done this so many times. And this is what he did. He said, honey, put your hand in my hand and we'll make it across this street. I've done this before. And she put her hand in his and off they went. And as they were walking across the street, the Holy Spirit said, that's Galatians Mm 2.20. That little girl still had to put her faith in her father, but it was her faith was being placed in the faith of the father who had already done this. So when it says we live by the faith of the son of God, the son of God was here, John. He conquered sin. He conquered temptation. He lived in dependence on his father. He was merciful. He was kind. And he says, and I can do this, put your faith in my faith, because mine is a proven faith. And then we go live. I think it's the best explanation I've ever heard of the passage.
1: Indeed, it is, my friend. Well, dear ones, thanks for joining us today on this episode of the Our Resolute Hope podcast. And if this is ministered to you today in any way, please, we invite you to visit our website, ourresolutehope.com. You'll find lots of resources there to help you along your walk of faith, all focused on the incredible truth of Jesus Christ as our Savior, our Lord, and our very life. Uh, Don't forget to follow us on our social media platforms, Facebook, Instagram, and I will ask you to check out our new and expanded YouTube channel. We've been posting a lot more content up there, and we'll continue to do so in the future. And of course, Follow us on your favorite podcast home, iTunes, Spotify, and Amazon Music, among others. And as always, we close with this reminder from Hebrews chapter 6 that we have this hope as an anchor for our souls. Peter calls it a living hope. Frank and I call it a resolute hope. And that hope is Jesus. A blessed hope, as Paul told Titus. So today and always, choose that hope and choose Jesus.
0: Thanks for listening. We trust that you've seen Jesus today. And you know that no matter what you're facing, He offers you Himself, His own life. He wants to live His life with you, in you, and through you as you trust Him and walk by faith in this troubled world. You've been listening to Our Resolute Hope Podcast. For more information, find us online at OurResoluteHope.com and check out our social media channels under the name Our Resolute Hope.